This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you know you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, unlike the Owls, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So there's only one thing left to say, what's everybody having? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points delivered too, so that ordering today means you'll get some tasty rewards later on. And between you and me, if you order just before kickoff, you can get it just in time for half-time, but I've not told you that. Only via the app at participating restaurants, 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery free and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. See you later. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hello, good evening, and welcome to another special episode of the Wednesday Week. Did you like my little countdown? I was dancing along to that. <laughs> All right. Uh, as part of the Owls alumni, uh, you can see the man in the corner join us. It's a man born and ra- raised in Edinburgh, but took up residence in Sheffield, and for a moment looks like he was never going to leave, but, but in a good way. Um, it's a promotion-winning captain who took Sheffield very much to his own heart. Please welcome one of the Kings of Cardiff and current Air United manager. It's Mr. Lee Bullen, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks a lot for joining us, Lee. You all right? Thank you very much for the invite, guys. Really looking forward to it. I think, uh, I think it's taken a lot of years of stalking to get you on this show, to be fair, Lee. So, uh, you know what I mean? Like the Scarlet Pimpernel when you get going. So, um, on, this, on this edition of the show, what we do, we tend to, um, we tend to go into your career. And then uh, once we get to Sheffield Wednesday, the rest of it just kind of fizzles out a little bit. So, uh, you know what I mean? What, what we kind of want to do is try and find out, uh, you know, who had the worst smelling socks in the dressing room, that type of thing, you know? Right, not not very childish yeah. at all, then. Eh? Oh no, it's it's all highbrow. It's all highbrow. Um, so right, so let you know. Let's let's get right into it. Um, again, appreciate your time because I know you, well. You're literally a full time football manager, so I, I appreciate you uh, you coming in and giving us giving us your time. So uh, let's go back to um, late seventies, early eighties. You're in Edinburgh. You're in the capital. Um, I, this is going to sound weird, but did. Was it? I'm going to make it sound like the favelas in Brazil, but was was football like a like a way out of getting there? Or I mean, you were in Edinburgh for Christ's sake. It's not like you were in some backwater town in the middle of nowhere, right? No, 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 no. 
no, it was fine. Football, football was always a passion as a kid. I think any kid growing up wanted to be a professional footballer. Back in the day, um, I was brought up a, a Hearts fan, followed my dad's team in Edinburgh. Mm. Kenny Dalglish was always my hero. Um, so Liverpool was my English team at the time as a kid growing up. So, But as with everything, every family, one of my brothers decided to be a Hibs fan, opposite of Hearts, obviously, and the other one decided to be an Aberdeen fan. So, um, I Football was in the blood, football was in the family. My dad uh, played at a decent level, had an opportunity to play at Middlesbrough, but went in in the forces instead. Um, and uh, my mum got pregnant with me and that sort of killed his footballing ambitions and he, he became my biggest supporter after that. Well, that's Blair was just saying that off air. He'd have been a professional footballer if uh, if he didn't have kids. You know, it, it's it's just par for the course, apparently. Like, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so I tell you what. Let me introduce you to the guys uh, down 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 underneath yourself. You've got Blair there, and then uh, and then the bottom right, you've got you've got Simon. Blair, have you got any uh, have you got any questions for Lee? You want to you want to get off your chest? Anything burgeoning in a way? I mean, all the questions I want to ask is like kind of later on your career, like coaching career, and like. You know, being being involved in the big takeover when Shansiri came in. Um, what I will want to say is just uh, you were like the first captain and the first player. Um, what give give me as a Sheffield Wednesday sport a bit of like a bit of something I can go to school with and go, ah, let's see, let's see who we've got on our team now. Because I'm, I'm, I first started going in 1999, we got relegated, and then two years later, we got relegated again. So it was just like awful. <laughs> I had so much bad football and bad football. Um, out of that team, I mean, it's probably got an obvious answer here. Who do you think would have made it in the current team now, or not in the current team now, the, the Wembley team? Who do you think would have would have been perfect for that team? What? So hold on, which Wembley are you talking about? You're talking about David Hurst Wembley? You're talking about? Jordan oh yeah, no. So your team, so your your team, what you? Uh, so you were at Cardiff. Cardiff. So that yeah, Cardiff so your team. Cardiff team. Who yeah. do you think could have made it in the the Wembley team um, where Carlos failed against Hull? So, um, I think it's a very difficult one because I think that is one of the most talented group of footballers that I've ever worked with, to be honest with you. Yeah, they're brilliant. No, genuinely, genuinely, I think they gave um, Sheffield Wednesday fans a, a real bit of excitement. You know, with players there, with the ability of Forestieri and Bannon and Ross Wallace, Gary Hooper, um, Bigatti, I know he was a, lot, a little bit marmite to some people, but very, very talented, big lad. And I think it was just the culture within the changing room was absolutely magnificent. There was such a team spirit about it that season. Um, and we felt unbeatable, especially after beating Bright. And we really were confident going to, going to Wembley against Holland. So, I don't know. Chris Brunt went on to have a wonderful, wonderful uh, career. Uh, Glenn Whelan as well. They're probably the two that would have pushed to trying to get into that team. Glenn would have had to fight with Sam To be fair, it would have been a heck of a fight, to be honest with you, Glenn Whelan and Sam <laughs> Hutchison, wouldn't it? Um, and uh, you got Chrissy Brunt uh, going toe-to-toe with Ross Wallace, which would be a difficult decision for anybody because both of them were so, so talented. So they'd be the two that would have stood out at that time and being such young boys uh, to get the opportunity to play part, uh, play a big part in being successful at, at Cardiff that time. Um, yeah, they certainly had the temperament to, to be part of that group anyway. Very much so. Very much so. Now, uh, we, we were obviously in preparation for tonight. We were we were looking through your career. And to be fair, Lee, it's fucking mental. Like, <laughs> I, I, like I, think, I think it's what some people would call the unorthodox approach. I mean, so, so tell us about where you started, where you went, how these 
abroad clubs came and then your return back to back to the UK. To, I mean, at, at the back end of your 20s, early 30s, right? Yep, yep. So, uh, listen, um, I was a schoolboy uh, signing at Dunfermline Athletic. So I was part of uh, the, well, it's called the BP Youth Cup. It was sponsored by BP. The BP Youth Cup, like the FA Youth Cup down in England. So I was part of that um, cup winning side at, at Dunfermline Athletic. I got on in the semi-final when we beat Rangers. Uh, I wasn't stripped in the final when we beat Dundee in the final. So I was part of that, but eventually got released at 17-year-old from Dunfermline. Went back and played uh, boys club football for a year. And then went, it's called junior football up here, but it's non-league football at 18-year-old. Um did really, really well. Got a move to Meadowbank Thistle, who are now Livingston. Almost a Wimbledon MK Dons type thing. Mm. Um, so, was at Meadowbank for a year and a half. Uh, got released. Went to Stenhouse Muir, part-time. Got released. And I thought, I'm never getting a chance again. Scottish football, that's me. Sort of, such a small shot. And um, I thought, right, I'm going to head off my travels. Going to go to Australia for my mum. Uh, her brother and sister both emigrated to Australia. I knew a guy who was coaching over there. So at 20 year old, I jumped on a plane to the other side of the planet and um, picked up a fo- football, part-time footballing gig over there. Worked in a worked in a factory and um, as a forklift truck driver. Um, got a job as a removals man. Um, did really well over there. Actually, I was still a striker at the time. Scored 11, uh, seven goals in 11 games and got an opportunity mm. to sign for a. National League team over in Australia. But there was a bit of red tape in relation to the kind of visa I needed to do that. And um, in the meantime, I suddenly got an offer from a team in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong was still British-owned at that time, before the handover in 1999. Um, so I didn't need any work permits or visas to go to Hong Kong. So I took the opportunity. And that, and at 20, I think it was 22 when I went to Hong Kong. That was the first opportunity I had of being full-time in professional football. It was a brilliant, brilliant life experience um, great opportunity for me to spend what four almost five years in Southeast Asia um, traveling all around playing in tournaments in Cambodia and uh, Taiwan and uh, various other places Malaysia China all these type of places and um, what what factor sun cream were you wearing when you were out there Lee I mean good lord man you know us Scots, they, they always they, they go that olive brown colour, don't they? When they <laughs> no, your body adjusted, listen, it was tough. It was the humidity that was, I don't know if you've ever been to Hong Kong, but the humidity in Hong Kong was really, really tough uh, initially on your body to play football. And um, I think it was highlighted, obviously, I think the biggest highlight my time in, in Hong Kong was to play against the national team of England just before Euro 96 mm-hmm. when Gaza ended up in the dentist chair. And um, prior to that game, we were basically, it was my league team with uh, two or three additional guest players um, that joined us. And um, everybody wrote us off, it's going to be double figures for England. Why are they taking this game? It's, it's a joke game type of thing. But ended up 1-0 and very, very close. And I had an opportunity myself to score in that game. I was uh, through, but Seaman made a wonderful, wonderful save. So, um, yeah, it was, humidity was the toughest thing, not necessarily the heat. You got used to it. Um, but, for me, the biggest thing out of that, other than getting a move to Greece after playing in that game, the biggest thing out of that was the was the people I met. I made, I made friends for life on my travels in Australia, in Hong Kong, and then moving on to Greece afterwards to play in the top league over there was, again, I'd 
had a, had a few knocks, obviously, getting released a couple of times in Scotland as a youngster. And then um, going to Australia, let me rebuild my career and step back up, step back up to professional football in Hong Kong, step back up to another level in, uh, in Greece, and then came back to Scotland and basically went round the planet and re-signed for Dunfermline again, coming back to Hong Kong, which was bizarre. <laughs> What an absolute circle! So, Simon, we are we are at the we're at the millennium now. Uh, did you have any subsequent questions about about the nineties before I move it on? I, I was only going to say to you, Lee. Obviously, when you played uh, the England team prior to Euro '96, and the the dentist chair, actually, that became infamous, didn't it? I don't know whether yeah. that was before or after uh, they played you guys. But what was the uh, what was the interaction between the England team and yourself? Obviously, were, were there many Europeans playing for your side against yeah. the, the England side? So in Hong Kong, you're allowed five foreign players in each team. Well, allowed to have six, but only five on the park at one time. And majority of them. So I played in my own team. We had uh, a lad called Carlton Fairweather, who was part of the crazy gang at uh, Wimbledon. We had Mike Duxbury, who was in England and Man United international fullback. Um, we had a big Dutch uh, centre-back and a Yugoslavian centre-forward that we worked with. Sorry, and another English lad. God rest his soul. He used to play for Sheffield Wednesday, a goalkeeper in Ian Hesford. Um, he he was our goalkeeper against England, and uh, unfortunately he passed away pretty young, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, but that was a foreign type of thing. But it was so the dentist chair incident was it was Gaza's birthday on the day of the game. Um, we played the game, and then they asked us uh, where's the best place to go for a night out. There was this bar. It was, it was sort of based around a TGI Friday type style, American diner bar club. So that was always packed with expats. So we told the English boys to go there. It was a local of mine. So we were in the club at the exact same time as the boys were there, the English boys. Obviously, the pictures are in the newspapers. Don't get me wrong, it doesn't look great, the pictures, but they were, they were not as bad as it was made out to be. I've got to be honest with you. They certainly had a good night, uh, fully led on by Gaza enjoying his birthday. Um, but... No, they, they were really good with us, even after the game in the in the bar. They were chatting to us, spoke to quite a few, spoke to Alan Shearer and uh, Tim Flowers after the game. Um, obviously, Gaza was in, Teddy Sheringham was in. The naughtiest little one was, uh, uh, who was a wee guy that played with Chelsea, who was always a pain in the backside. Dennis Wise. That's the man, Dennis Wise. He, <laughs> he was the naughtiest one in there, I would say. <laughs> I, I love the idea that when Paul Gascoigne scored against Scotland, all of your countrymen right, right, right. were yeah, going, for fuck's sake! And you're sat there going, I was there! I was there when he did that! <laughs> that is, you know, it's a sweet I, moment for you, Lee. I was actually at Wembley for that game as well, to be honest with you. So that was about two weeks <laughs> after and I went to the game. So see when we got the penalty to potentially equalise and then see when we saves it and then... Five minutes later, Gaza goes up the park and scores that wonder goal and decides to do that. I'm like, oh. And I was there with three lads from Hong Kong, to be honest with you. And um, <laughs> we all looked at each other to say, yeah, we know exactly where that is. But that's about, so. <laughs> Amazing. If you're going to lose a game of football to a goal like that, then you can't complain too much. Nah. Yeah, because because nah. we're quite pragmatic about losing to Argentina oh, in 86. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? So yeah. I. I get, I get what you mean. I get what you mean. So, <laughs> as we've as we've moved on now, and it, we're at the turn of the millennium. I mean, and as the late nineties are hitting, were you ever sat thinking to yourself, "I can play at a higher level here"? And did you know that 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 was going to come about? So no, I think I think definitely heading off on my trip to Australia and regaining a bit of confidence in myself. 
then getting the opportunity to Hong Kong and then going to Greece, then I suddenly realised, you know what, I'm not as bad as I thought it was, to be honest with you. I think I could do something here. And I proved something to myself when I went back to Dunfermline. OK, when I joined Dunfermline, we were in the championship at the time, um, but we got promoted to the Premier League in Scotland. So I had gone from somebody that had been released from a uh, League One, League Two side in Scotland to suddenly um, playing a big part in taking a team to the Premier League and signing a Premier League contract. I never thought I'd ever be able to do that. And the experience of that and going to Rangers and Celtic at the time with some of the players they had, like uh, Sutton and Hartson and Larson at Celtic. And then you've got the De Boer brothers and um, Mikel Arteta and Tugay and all these type of guys playing at Glasgow Rangers. You know, that was unbelievable. I, I was I was freaked to being on the same pitch as the English lads, obviously, at the time. Um, but going up against these guys, these were these were big world class world class players at the time, and it was it was great to be lining up on the same sort of pitch as these guys. Had you had you already made your transition from striker to defender by this point? Then, so you've gone well, to no, I had a season at striker at uh, Dunfermline, and then they signed two lads that were way better than me. So I slowly but surely started to step back. Was I started at right midfield, then ended up at right back, and then signed with Wednesday as a right back initially with Chris Dunnard. Um, and then slotted into to centre back when there was a couple of injuries. I think Spike Graham Lee got injured. Mm. Uh, big guy Branston took a knock, which to be fair, it'd have to be a heck of a knock to do anything to put him out again, right enough. Um, and then uh, yeah, so I moved back into centre back with Big Woody at the time. Okay, so now Blair, we've got to Blair, we've got to Sheffield Wednesday. So um, you know, ask him about how it came about that. You know what I mean? I, I know you've, I know. We've done Scotland now. We've done China. We've done Greece. So we can, we can get to your era now, bro. I, and I know you're excited about it. <laughs> How old were you when we, when we went to Cardiff? Um, so I was just turning fifteen. So I was still fourteen. Ah, yeah. Good. So it was just like it was, it's like that age when you when you really just start falling in love with it properly and start so getting. You're older, so you're older than Liam Palmer, then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was actually on um I was on holiday in Skegness with my mate. And um, I can remember like saying to his dad, like, "Come on, we need to get home because I need to watch this match of football." He, and his dad just didn't care about football. And I'm like, right. <laughs> yeah, so "I don't want to swear at someone's Blair, dad." But I was like, "I've got to get." Blair, some. sorry, and I, I know you're reminiscing here. My apologies, Blair. But so, the, the the ironic thing is, I was working at Butley's Family Entertainment Resort, Skegness, <laughs> on that day, and I drove there on the day and drove back. We had a spare space in the car and everything, no. pal. But me, me, kid, <laughs> me kidnapping fifteen-year-olds to take them to another country is frowned upon. Um, so yeah, you spent was it four years playing with us? Yeah, Blair. I think it was. Yes, it was four four seasons. Yeah, yeah, and, then, and I, I completely forgot you went back to Falkirk, and then you came back to um. What? Who brought you back as a coach? Um, it was Sean McCauley that brought me down initially to get involved with the academy. Um, so he invited me back down. The EPPP had um, opened up a few more jobs within the academy system. Um, so it was Sean McCauley that gave me the first shout. At the time, the manager, Gary Megson, had just left and Dave Jones had just taken over. So mm. I went back and started part-time uh, after leaving Falkirk. Part-time with Sean uh, and the uh, under 18s, knowing that an under 21 team was going to be have to be put together for the following season. So, Sean got me to dip my toe in the waters working there. Obviously, we came back down the road, and myself and my, my partner at the time um, bought a business uh, in, in the town. 
and I was working part-time there and working part-time at Wednesday at the same time. So it was all down to Sean McCauley. Nice. So it's all his fault. <laughs> it's all his fault, indeed. Okay, so there's there, I've written down a, a note here, and you know, you you were part of the um, the wonderful Matt Exton video uh, all Wednesday, and there's there's a wonderful part where you speak so warmly about Sheffield and, and playing for Sheffield Wednesday during that video, saying about how it gets into you, about yeah. how you be you become a part of it. I feel that. I feel that Barry Bannon's going through that now, if I'm honest. Yeah. I feel like I feel like a few years ago he's kind of just assumed Sheffield as his own, that type of thing. I mean, can you describe that? Can you t- can you talk about that? I mean, walking out in front of that crowd, you know, was it early doors where he went, well, this is for me? No, I think um, early on we had a pre-season when we first arrived in Ibiza. Ah, which, the, in- the infamous which, Ibiza trip. Which... Uh, which certainly um, fostered a bit of team spirit, shall I say, during that thing. We beat Preston and we beat, uh, we beat uh, no, we actually got beat on penalties against Watford in the final of that tournament, to be honest with you. Um, no, listen, we were basically a group of waifs and strays that had been thrown together by Chris at Wednesday. And it wasn't until, I don't think, we walked out in that first official home game and you hear Hi Ho Sheffield Wednesday that you actually realised, wow, this is something that I had never dreamed of playing at a club of this size. I know we were in the third tier of English football at the time, but even I knew the history and the players that had done so well with Sheffield Wednesday in the past and regularly sort of pushing up the Premier League or the First Division back in the day and getting uh, visits to Wembley semi-finals and finals and things like that. But to walk out and hear that crowd at that time, having just missed out on being relegated to the league below the season before, by all accounts, and... Mm. Um, it just made the hairs in the back of my neck stand up. And um, obviously at that time, Chris Marsden was the captain of the team and playing. Uh, I was just this new kid on the block that had just arrived who basically probably nobody knew. Um, but we, we did have a hell of a team spirit that season. And I know Dave Allen gets a bit of stick from various quarters in relation to the fan base and things like that. But he did have in our contracts, there was a, a thing that every single player had to live within a 15-mile radius of Sheffield. Um, now... If you step out of Sheffield any further than the boundaries and go on a 15-mile radius, then there's no anywhere else you'd want to live other than Sheffield. So <laughs> um, so basically, everybody lived in Sheffield. All the players lived in Sheffield. So after training, if you wanted to go for a coffee, you'd always bump into one of the lads with his girlfriend or his wife. Or um, if, we, if we did win on a Saturday and we decided to go out for a couple of drinks on a Saturday night, you'd always bump into four or five of the lads. So it just built this real sort of uh, family team spirit that season and I don't think it was necessarily the quality of the squad that's got us there I think it was the team spirit and the, the real culture within the changing room that was built that season that got us promoted there it was just phenomenal along with the crowd and some of the memories from that day alone uh, there and the semi-finals at Brentford were just things that I'll never ever ever forget Now before I just hand over to Simon I've just I just want to hear one tale from you uh, having spoke to a few people from that squad, I mean, you know, obviously you're the one that we want to get on. You were the captain, and don't tell anybody, but you know what I mean. Uh, but the that trip to Ibiza, tell us about Mac and missing the coach. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't uh, Stevie McLean. Oh, was it not? No, it was it was Lewis McMahon. Yes, right. So Macca, yes, still a Macca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stevie yeah, yeah. It was Lewis not McMahon. Stevie Mac. Um, right, so 
so we were training at 10 o'clock in the morning now we had um we had just beat preston in the first game and played really really well so chris allowed the players to have a couple of drinks in the in the in the bar and hotel i think about three years uh, had a bit of drink in the hotel i don't know where the other lads went to um well, I do know where they went. I'm not going to divulge that here and there. But um, fair to say, fair to say that um, a lot of them struggled to get out of their beds the following morning to get on the team bus to go to training. So we're sitting on the team bus at ten o'clock. It was only Lewis that was there missing. Um, so we're knocking on his door, knocking on his door, knocking on his door, knocking on his door. Nothing coming out the door. We try to get somebody to open the door. Um, he wasn't in his bed, and we just couldn't figure out where he was and then eventually Chris says right listen we've got to go we've got to go to training we've only got this short spell and we've got this uh, final against Watford in three days time type of thing so we need to um, get on with things and just as we're pulling away a taxi pulls up Lewis McMahon comes sprinting out in the same clothes that he's had on the, from the night before and uh, jumps on the bus without any kit luckily enough uh, old Pete the kit man had spare kit on the bus for him so again I think he just went for a walk and just couldn't figure his, find out his way back to be honest with you <laughs> that that must have been it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well done, it. I don't know yeah, where he is. Yeah. To be honest with you, you'll have to get him on. He's in Australia now. You'll have to ask him for the proper truth. Yeah, we will. We will. Go on, Simon. So, Lee, um, obviously Chris Turner signed you, but then part way through the season he left, and Paul Sturrock came in. And um, obviously, you have some idea of Paul Sturrock because he's a bit of a hero up in your neck of the woods. Well, certainly up in Dundee. What was his first impact when he came in and took over from Chris? How did it change in the changing room, training, and so on and so forth? Uh, he certainly wasn't shy in telling you the truth. Um, and I think actually that's probably the reason that our fan base took him so well. Um, he would call it as he saw it during games and, and I know sometimes a lot of managers I've got to speak with a little bit of political tongue just to ensure that um, there's no scapegoating or anything like that nowadays especially um, but but Paul would just say as it is if you had a bad game he'd say Lee Bullen had a bad game let us down with that and this and other um, within the changing room he he knew success for this league with his Plymouth team he understood what it was to, to get up the top of this league and get out of this league um, and his assistants also, and John Blackley and uh, and Kev were, were were excellent as well. They had they were a good drilled team. Now Paul Sturrock was a, a bit of a hero of ours. That Dundee United team that beat Barcelona and things like that, and soft rolled down, scruffy bugger he was. Um, but he was um, he was brilliant for me. He was brilliant for me because he's honesty. I think there's too much sort of. I don't like using the word backstabbing, but I'm going to use the word backstabbing in football. Um, I would rather get it told to my face if somebody's not liking you or you've had a bad game or you, at least you know where you stand um, I've seen it too often that people will tell you one thing to your face and say something else behind your back and that's that's not how I like to work and it's probably one of the things that you pick up from managers when you get the opportunity to do the job yourself um, he was straight down the middle he, his tactics were very black and white It was there was no grey areas in any way whatsoever. It was a 4-4-2 and it was a, a basic kind of pass the ball forward and run forward style of football. And um, it got the results that, that we needed and got us over the line. So um, who needs Mourinho? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Blair, uh, we've spoken a little bit about that season. Let's let's get to that final. Let's get to that game. Let's do it. What, Cardiff? No, fucking Wembley. What, what else do you think I mean? What? 
<laughs> Kids. <laughs> what was Do the you feeling? Want me to talk about? What was going to ask a question? You just yeah, I was, was going to say. Uh, I, I was. Can I? Can I just ask a question prior to we get to Wembley? Lee, you went to Rother Valley on a team bonding. Yeah. And I, I've got the Kings of Cardiff book, and there's photographs of you at Rother Valley getting quite wet, falling yep. in, etc. It was cold. Rother Valley was so cold. I mean, it's Rother Valley. I mean, sometimes they ban dogs from there because of the algae in there. <laughs> <laughs> Whose idea was that? Sturrock. Paul Sturrock. He needed to just get us out because there, there is a heck of a break between the final and the final. Um, and some clubs will go away. Some clubs will just stay uh, stay close by. He wanted to keep it as normal as possible, but he, he did know that we'd go cold turkey just being into the training ground every 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 day. So he decided to do something different, take us kayaking up to uh, up to Rother Valley. Um, he scooted her out and done a, on some sort of speedboat to keep an eye on us. And then they had some guy doing us different fun games and races and just a bit of fun. It, it was great. I've got to be honest with you, it was great and it broke the ice a little bit and it broke the monotony and of the build-up and um, listen, it wasn't exactly a have a few glasses of wine like before the whole game that we needed to win up there. Um, the second game or last game of the season or whatever it is when he produced that on a Friday. But it was something different that exactly let us clear our minds for the football side of things and just, uh, just have a bit of a laugh at each other's expense. What was what was it like on the pitch when we went two one down? Did you did you feel we could get back into it, or was it like because that was God one of the earliest goals? I distinctly remember it when we did go two one down, and then um, I think it was about twenty minutes to go, and he had made subs. Uh, I think Paddy had just come on, and Alex Bruce had just gone off. So it was myself, Woody, Paddy, and uh, and Hecky were the two fullbacks. And I remember turning to Woody and, and pulling Hecky over and, and Paddy and saying, listen, what it's, it's, I don't know if I can swear, but it's shit or bust here. We have to go for it. So just let me and Woody go man for man against their two strikers and you two just bomb on, just go forward. Because we're as, lo- as well losing 3-1 as we are 2-1. It's the same difference. So let's go for it. See if we, uh, see if we can get something out of it. Um, Stevie coming on. Uh, so... Paul made three subs at the same time, didn't he, to bring uh, to bring the lads on, with, and then obviously Drew come on it as well, um, and we got a break. We got a break with the at the time. I thought it was a stone waller. Um, one angle shows it as a stone waller. About eight angles show it as the softest penalty that's ever been given in a final. I would think so. We got a little bit of a break for that side of things, um, and and fair play to Stevie. I mean, it's on record the story. I think he was on 19 goals. He needed one more goal for a a bit of a goal scoring bonus to get there. So he's got this penalty and. Bizarrely enough, big Jimmy Constantopoulos is now my goalkeeping coach up here at Air United. Um, so I don't remind him of that final much at all, virtually every day, to be honest with you. But uh, <laughs> to be fair, it was Stevie's worst penalty ever. And Jimmy says that. He says, that's the worst penalty. See if he catches it right, I saved that penalty. So Stevie sclaffed the ball into the back of the net. And at that point, after they'd had the red card, you... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We all know away days are mint, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. Same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. You in? Order now with the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. For more information, see mcdonalds.com. See you later. Physically, see everything drain out of them. I know Richie Humphreys really, really well, and he knows that that one decision and that one goal was the the deciding factor in that game. It was only a matter of time. And when Glenn Whelan went on to to score the third, and then obviously the final goal is just that's 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 written in the stars for uh, for the young lad to go and do, for Drew to go and do score that goal. And um, it was it was just the the feeling of relief. When that went in was, and you could sense it around the whole like three quarters of the stadium as well. I don't think it was necessarily joy. I think it was relief. Um, yeah, to get so back on no, the yeah. Well, if you if you think about that that game at Cardiff, that time when you've when you've walked in, and you you've you've got to that pitch and you've looked and you've gone Jesus Christ, and then when when Humphrey scored, when, you know when we went one nil down and it silenced, like you said, three quarters of the stadium, that must have made you go shit. It, it was. It was. It was eerie, and you start to question. You start to look around, and that's when we had to just sort of pull ourselves together, galvanise, and say, "Listen, it's not over." And again, take a few gambles here and there. Um, you know what? See, one of my abiding memories of that is one right at the very start, walking out with the, the little mascot lad and looking round. And I think it had been about a week before, or five, six days before, Stephen Gerrard had. Uh, captain Liverpool back from being 3-0 down in the Champions League final to win it uh, in Turkey against AC Milan um, and I sort of pictured myself being like not Steven Gerrard but being in that sort of scenario lifting, lifting a trophy for uh, your own club in different scenarios but it would have meant as much to our supporters as that did for Liverpool fans um, mm-hmm. for our players as much as it did for Liverpool players but the first ever World Cup I can think of was the Argentina 78 World Cup and that final when Mario Kempe scores the goals and they walk out in uh, Argentina in the final and it's all the ticker tape everywhere. That's what I felt when I walked out, just see blue and white everywhere around the stadium. Um, and it, it did, it just sort of, for a split second, took me back to that memory. Sitting at home watching the World Cup final against Holland and that final with the blue and white everywhere. And I walked out there holding the hands of this... Uh, Little red-headed lad um, who I have met since, and he's probably about three foot taller than me now. The, the little kid that walked out with me on on the on the in the final as a as a mascot. It was it was just one of these weird sort of deja vu moments that you think you've I've seen this picture in my head before. It was it was amazing, um, but then to be eight minutes away for throwing it all out the window was was uh, was not fun. Shall I put it that way? I can imagine. Now, listen, I'm sorry to take you away for a Cardiff for just a second, but we've had a couple of questions via YouTube This is where this has gone out live. And uh, a guy called James has gone, just joined. Have we covered Lee going in goal away at Millwall and that incredibly dodgy free quick he got when it, could have been a, when it should have been a Millwall goal? And then yeah. while they were all still celebrating, Frankie Semmock storming down the pitch to score what ended up being the winner, which just kept us up and sent Millwall down. So yeah. tell us about that day. So amazing. So Paul Sturrock decided, decided in his wisdom that he was only going to go with one goal. He'd take a goalkeeper off the bench and put an extra striker on the bench, just in case, because it was what it was. It was a winner, winner takes all sort of game that day down there. And um, 
let's be right, if you had a choice of anywhere in English football to go where you needed to win a game of football, I don't think Millwall would be your choice. Um, yeah, so Sod's Law, uh, David Lucas goes up, grabs the ball, nobody near him, comes down, twists his knee completely. And we're all looking around thinking, oh my God, here we go, what, what's happening here type of thing. And then they gave the shout of the, the old typical physio shout over to the bench. So I made the decision to go in goals. And um, luckily enough, we we only had 25 minutes of that half left with the Millwall fans behind me because some, some choice words there. It's, it's not easy being 33-year-old Scottish and sort of red hair with uh, the Millwall fans behind you. Um, some of the Some of the... Chants were uh, enjoyable, shall I say, from that side of things. Um, so, luckily enough, it was only 25 minutes that end, and then we had the full 45 minutes at the other end, which had the Wednesday fans behind us. So, that caught, so that free kick initially gets given. Edge of the box. Um, the boy bends it towards the top corner, get up, be able to tip it around, uh, tip it around the post or tip it over the bar. Uh, and then, typically, in swinging corner, they put about four boys just round me completely. So, you knew exactly where it was going. Drissa Diallo, Richard Wood, uh, what had been absolutely immense. Um, they headed and kicked absolutely everything. But apart from that corner, it gets swung in under the bar. I've tried to go up to punch it, and I've just been clattered into the ground. Um, and, th- and that's your story, and you're sticking with it, yeah? You got That clattered. is exactly what happened. But listen, it's, it's not finished yet. That's exactly what happened. Clattered to the ground, end up in the back of the net with the ball. So they all run off celebrating. I'm sort of claiming, oh, it's got to be a foul, got to be a foul. They've clattered into me, everything like that. And the referee's actually given the foul. I'm like, it must have been them that clattered into me. Having watched it again on video, I think it was Woody and Drissa that were trying to head it and they clattered me into the back of the net. So <laughs> if, if, if I'm being genuinely honest, um, yeah, the goal should have stood, I would have thought. But I don't know what's more surprising. One, me keeping a clean sheet in Millwall. Two, a referee giving uh, a non-goal uh, against Millwall at the Den, or three, Frankie Simic crossing the halfway line, never mind getting in the box to score a goal. So, yeah, there's three quiz questions in a, in a row in that one, that one incident. So, no, nah, that was absolutely brilliant. And our fans were absolutely phenomenal for the rest of that game. And we kept a clean sheet. And it's probably one of my proudest moments, I think, in football, being able to keep a clean sheet for 70 minutes or something. I played with David Lucas a couple of times in some of these sort of charity games, um, old guys games type of thing. And it, as, as well as it was one of my biggest memories, it's probably one of his biggest. He, he reckons that one knee uh, injury probably cost him his Sheffield Wednesday career. And he's always been gutted about that, to be honest with you. He felt he just left uh, Sheffield Wednesday before his own time. Well, we, we did have a, an audio episode when we did an episode with David Lucas about three years ago during the first lockdown. But yep. um, the, the audio quality wasn't great and uh, he was pissed up. And I think he told that story, <laughs> but Lucas, I can't. I, no chance. I know it's it's shocking information, isn't it? Uh, but um, but listen, we do have another question on on Twitter, and it's from Steve Johnson, and it says, "Ask Lee about away trips with John Hills." Oh God, is this the same Steve Johnson that wrote, uh, played a part in writing my book with Alan Biggs? I think it might. Be it could, I think it. I think it could well be, boss. Yes. Uh, listen, I actually shared a house with John Hills. And um, at the time, I was with my first wife, got married, came down. So, no, this wasn't an away trip. This is a different story. So, I'm not even going to go on away trips with John. So, you can take it from this story how bad away trips were with John Hills, right? So, anyway, um, my wife had come down the road uh, with my kids from Edinburgh um, for a weekend. And we had gone out for a meal, come home, got to bed. Hillsy had gone out in the lash in Sheffield. 
So anyway, he, he comes home with Steve Watson back to the house. So Watto lived over in Manchester, but Hilsey and his friends decided, say, I'll just come back to the house. You can crash on our couch. Brilliant. My family's there, everything. The two of them come in bladdered. Um, so Watto crashes on the couch. Uh, Hilsey decides to come up the stairs, open the door, switch the lights on and dive into bed with me and my good lady. Um, absolutely steaming drunk, jumping in the middle of us and just telling us how much he loves all, both of us and kissing us and everything. My missus is like, who the, Jesus Christ, is this geezer coming and jumping in here? So that was Hilsey in a nutshell. Um, and that was a tame version of some of the stories he's had. The away trips with Hilsey were... Yeah, not printable, not talkable. Sorry, I can't go there. It would, uh, no. <laughs> I could, I could damage Hilsies for life. Okay, now Blair had some questions that he wanted to ask about your, um, about going into coaching and, and going in that way. I mean, so you've you've gone from Sheffield Wednesday, you've gone to Falkirk, two places where I assume there's pictures of Chris Waddle everywhere, and <laughs> and, and then you've come back. Uh, go on, Blair. Yeah, which um, which coach did you learn the most, like under, um, from a personal point of view? Like, who did something you just thought, whoa, and never even thought of that? Like, this would it be Carlos? This is a question that gets asked to virtually every coach, every new coach that comes out, and then, and then the answer I always tend to give is that it's not so much what I learned from coaches; it's what I learned that I wouldn't do if I ever became a coach. There yeah. are certain things that coaches, and I thought if I ever do become a coach, I would never do that type. I've played under coaches that name the team on the day of the game. And I've always found that tough as a player. If you weren't in the squad or weren't on the starting eleven, I will always preferred, as disappointed as you are, to be told that you're on the bench or you're not in the squad on the Friday at least, so you could get over your disappointment uh, before coming in on a Saturday and then getting your game head on and supporting your teammates. Um, there was uh, there's a couple of coaches I've played under when uh, they've decided that players are surplus to requirement that they send them to train with the 21s or 23s or something like that. I never felt that was fair. I mean, put your cards on the table, be honest with the player and let them know that, listen, I'm just going to go on a different route and blah, blah, blah. But I would always have players train train with me in the first team, unless they let themselves down or unless they become session wreckers or anything like that. I think they deserve that respect first and foremost. Um, and I think you got a little bit of respect back from them as well, although you've told them that their career with you is potentially over. Um, I just There's a couple of little sort of things that I picked up on coaches that I wouldn't do. Now, some of the best coaches I've worked under, I had a brilliant coach in Hong Kong who was basically the one that gave me my confidence back, a Chinese lad, um, who's now not no longer with us. But Carlos was brilliant. Carlos was absolutely brilliant. Him and his staff were fantastic. One, because they, they were so inclusive in relation to myself. He had four or five Portuguese staff, and whenever you come in in the morning, they were probably in about 20 minutes before I would get in. They're all speaking away Portuguese. As soon as I walked in the door, Carlos was saying, right, no speaking Portuguese, you've got to speak English now. So myself and Andy Rhodes, we always felt part of it. They never, we never felt excluded. Um, and I thought, he, tactically, especially that first year, he, 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 he was great in some of his ideas. Maybe the second year, he, he changed slightly. I, I don't know, maybe went a little bit more pragmatic. But um, we actually had a better record and finished higher up the league going that way. And don't get me wrong, I thought... Out of the two opportunities in the playoffs, I thought the second opportunity was probably our best one against the other teams. Oh, 100%. Mm. Got, got promoted without scoring a goal. Go, go on, son. No, I know, I don't even go up there. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so frustrating. And the, and the goal they got that fluked them into the final and the, was just so hard, so destroying for uh, for Leasy as well, just to take a deflection. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, yeah, it was a painful, painful night. What happened with the um, with Irby Emanuelson then? Because that was a dodgy signing, wasn't it? Like, he turned up, he never, yeah. and like he had good pedigree, 
and then he made one appearance on the final game of the season. And in that game against Huddersfield, Hudel was blowing out of his ass. But it's not like he needed taking off. He needed someone else to be a left back. And that's when they that's when they brought that like, Benno on. And he, he murdered Pudel that, that, that ten minutes, and that's when they got the goal. Um, so, what, 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 why did like, Emmanuelson does not get favours? Did he not play well, or what was again? What? Ultimately, ultimately, I, I really couldn't answer that in relation to because Carlos wouldn't give me a reason why he wouldn't uh, put certain players or make certain uh, make certain decisions on on his substitutions. That was down to him. But um, listen, Irby was a great lad. He came in, and I've got to be honest. When he first came in, he was miles off it fitness wise. Miles off fitness-wise. Yeah. So he took a while to get going with that side of things. And then in the few games that Carlos did see him, he obviously felt that he just was at a point in his career that probably was always going to be a second choice to Puda at the time. Um, and at the time, let's be right, Daniel had been magnificent that season as well. So it was always going to be tough for everybody to get in. As you say, did he tire in that game? Of course he did. And he was uh, he was blown a little bit. But... Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we were starting to get to that point where was it? Was he starting to think about uh, the penalty situation and mm. would we need more offensive players on the park and all this type of thing? So I don't know. Listen, managers live and die by their decisions, and unfortunately, listen, we were penalty kicks away for going to Wembley again, and that's that's how close it was, or a deflection for going to going to uh, going to Wembley again. So. Yeah. It was a tough night. Oh, really? We remember it well, Lee. We remember it well. Simon, you we all do. We all do, mate. Simon, you're on mute. If I if I just wanted to politely remind you, but um, but I believe you've got some more questions about the coaching and the managing. Well, yeah, I was going to say to you, Lee, because obviously you presided over a time where, like you said, when you first joined, we were a mismatch of players, um, but we all had a common aim. Um, then obviously. We, we started moving towards Carlos coming in and there was this all of a sudden there was this open checkbook. So then we had all these characters and these highly talented characters coming into the changing room. Obviously, you sitting back and seeing Fernando Forestieri in there, Ross Wallace, um, Lucas Yao, Marco Matthias. How difficult or easy was it to manage those different characters because obviously the second year of Carlos's tenure we had the issue with Forestieri not travelling to Norwich due to wage demands how did that affect the changing room how did it affect the dynamics did the dynamics change a lot I mean you must have sat back from it and gone blimey this is a little bit different from when I first came yeah no 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 listen characters are characters and I think it, it... Nine times out of ten, a changing room runs runs itself, um, and if you get that, and that's basically what happened for the first season. The second season, was it down to wage demands or was it down to agents uh, pushing buttons and thinking that they can maybe uh, get his client something better? For me, even going to Norwich at that time, I, I think it would have been a wrong choice for Fernando. Um, he certainly made a wrong choice, a uh, wrong decision on that opportunity to withdraw himself from the from the uh, from the game going down to Norwich that day anyway put it that way so no I think there was a talk a, a, a good bid was it potentially Cardiff I think I maybe talked about a big bid for Fernando at that time uh, about nine million or something and the chairman wanted to stand steadfast in relation to no we keep our best players because we just missed out last year and we can go again this year hopefully um, but I think Fernando made the wrong decision but I don't think it was only his decision I think his agent didn't help him shall I say. And that, that did ruffle a few feathers. And unfortunately, I, I was one of them that had to basically, Carlos did move him out of training for a couple of weeks, but he actually, 
he, he gave me the enviable job, enviable job of looking after Fernando for two weeks and basically doing one-to-one training sessions and working him hard and everything like that. So uh, that wasn't easy. But I've got to admit, Fernando, I think, realised the mistake he had made and um, he never complained once. He worked really hard for that side of things and um, eventually won the manager back over and got himself back into the team. But if you were to ask him if he regretted it, I would like to think he would say yes, but I really don't know because he was he's a lawn to himself at times, Fernando. But he was also... Um, probably a player with the talent that should have been playing in the Premier League, but he was playing in the Championship for a reason, and it was maybe that type of thing that uh, was the reason behind it. So, listen, I think we were privileged to have a player of that ability in our football team. When he played and played the way he could, he was, he was, he was the best player in the, in the Championship. Okay, so I'm I'm going to swerve Alman Abdi and talking about him. Um, <laughs> Because I, I think, you know, I don't think many people knew what was going on with him. But what I wanted to talk about was your times managing the team. Talk to us about the two or three times you did it. You know, the Burton game. T- tell us it all. Because we're having shitty sound issues here. And the more you talk, it sounds better. Very good. So, the first time, um, obviously, Carlos moved. Um, and the chairman asked me to tickle over for two or three games until he made a decision on what he was going to do. So, obviously, the first game was... We've not been on a great run of form, have we? So, I just felt like it was a... At the time, I knew I wasn't ready to take the job myself at the time. Okay? So, mm-hmm. so I knew it was only going to be short-term. Um, Sorry, Lee, Did you feel that the chairman was pulling on your personality, your popularity with the fans to try and galvanise it? Or did you feel like you got there on merit somewhat? No, I think I got there on merit somewhat, having um, done the piece with Stuart Gray and then being part of a relatively successful sort of coaching group with Carlos uh, and things like that. So uh, I think the chairman probably, he also knows I had a good relationship with the fans, but I don't think that was the reason. I think he knew that I, that I would do things right in the right way and mm-hmm. uh, decisions um, that I felt would be right for the, for the football club. And um, yeah, we got off to a great start, obviously, down it. Uh, down at Forest, we had a, a brilliant result. Um, so it seemed easy to me. Uh, this this managing lark was a toddler, wasn't it? Obviously. Uh, two days later, we had to go down to Brentford, didn't we? And um, uh, that was that was always going to be a tough one down there. Brentford were just at mm-hmm. their point where they suddenly sprung from nowhere and were becoming a real sort of live wires of the club. You could mm-hmm. really sense something was happening in that football club at the time. And we went down there. And let's be right, though, to be honest with you, we were only 1-0 down. We had about 20-odd minutes to go. And I thought, listen, we hadn't been much in the game. We had papered together. We had so many injuries. There was, I think we had about 10 missing. Glenn Lubins had to play ill. Um, so he was running on empty as well. Um, and we were 1-0 down with 20 minutes to go. We were hanging on in the game. And I just thought, you know what, if we're going to lose, I'm going to lose having a go. So I just switched it to a 3-5-2 and tried to get an extra body up top and thought, let's have a go at it. As soon as we switched it, they scored. And then we're like, oh, God, that's that's really killed that sort of opportunity. And we ended up losing the game. And listen, they comfortably beat us on the day. We were, we were as I say, we were swimming to keep ourselves above water at that during that game. Just from a playing point of view, they were absolutely shattered. And then came the infamous one against Burton at home, which just... Everything fell apart. We lost a penalty well in the first minute, but Joe Wellsmith saves it. Um, we just couldn't get going. And I think the the injuries and the 
the fatigue that the group of players that were having to put out game after game after game because we had very few opportunities to change it. They were all filling in. There was, as I say, Glenn had been ill at the Burton game and I can't remember if he put himself out there in the... Uh, sorry, ill at the Brentford game. I can't remember if he even volunteered to go out again against Burton. I can't really remember. Uh, Danny Puro came on and made a mistake for, the, I think it was the third or the fourth goal, but it was a, it was a game where now nah, it proved there was a lot of work needing done during that January mm-hmm. window. Uh, so to speak, and then um, then we had the FA Cup game up at Carlisle, which uh, we drew. We should have won the game. We actually played all right during the game, um, but they got an equaliser. We brought them back home, and then we beat them in the in the replay. But I think that uh, I think Jos was at the game uh, at Carlisle, but didn't take didn't take the the reins until after that game. He he got the envy of. Oh, no, I was gutted. I just wanted one more game, but um, he got the enviable game of. Uh, Taking a struggling Sheffield Wednesday team to Bramall Lane for his first game. Mm. <laughs> the what second a time, what a save as well from Adam Reach. It could have been a one-nil win. I know. Save, I know. I remember that. Ah, Cammy Dawson saves the penalty as well, doesn't he? It's, it's, yeah. It's, uh, well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I've got a I've got a couple of quick fire questions here for you, Lee. Yep. Uh, worst fashion sense, apart from Lee Peacock. Oh, you've just killed me. Um, <laughs> Tell us about one of his worst outfits because some of the things he wears. I swear, to, I swear to God, I met Lee Peacock about six years before um, before he even uh, joined him at Sheffield Wednesday. Magaluf, he'd go to Magaluf every year, and at Dunfermline, as a as a as a team, at the end of every season, we'd go to Magaluf for three or four nights just to enjoy the end of season type of thing. And Peaks would always be there. But he'd be in Magaluf, it'd be 31 degrees, and he'd walk up and down the strip in a fur coat. You know, one of those old, you know, um, what's the old... Macklemore. Um, fur coat that uh, old car salesman would wear. You yeah, know, John Morrison. Ah, ah, exactly, John, that yeah. type of thing. In Magaluf, 31 <laughs> degrees, and he's walking up and down the strip in this flipping thing. We're vest on underneath, so, no. Nobody would beat Peacock in relation to the worst dress sense ever. Nobody. Um... I don't know. Sam Hutchison was up there, but nah, nah, Lee Peacock all day long. <laughs> okay. Uh, what, what have I got here? I've got um, best gifted footballer. I assume, given what you said earlier on, it's somewhere along the lines of Chris Brunt, right? Yeah. Uh, that I played with. Played okay. with and coached. Yeah, uh, which ones? We were played with. Brunty would be up there, but Forestieri, definitely. And um, listen... I've only worked with two players that sometimes you've stood at the side of the training pitch and you've actually found yourself laughing because some of the stuff they do in training. And uh, our current captain is like that. When he broke, when he came into the team, he just used to do things in training that were just like phenomenal. He just had such a vision to see passes or uh, it was as if he had eyes in the back of his head sometimes. And he's been, he deserves every credit he's got. He is, listen, the ultimate legends are your Hursts and your Waddles and your Sheridans and Calvin Palmers and people like that, absolutely. But he deserves to be in that sort of status. He, he would have had loads of opportunity to leave the football club, especially when they got relegated. And I remember sitting down with him as a, as a, when they did get relegated and um, and asking him about options. And he says, yeah, I've got options to go. I says, Baz, you've got an opportunity. Honestly, I was some wee guy for Penny Cook that nobody ever heard. I came down here, suddenly got a promotion back as a captain with Sheffield Wednesday. And now... You hardly can go out in Sheffield without somebody wanting to buy you a drink. I says, you've got an opportunity here in your career as the captain of this football club to return it back to the championship, which it'll never be forgotten, me man. And and, it, and I, I'm hoping it played half a part and I'm sort of, you know what? 
yeah, why not? Why not? And he stuck at it, and I was absolutely buzzing for him last year. I'm glad he sort of depicted my my photo sitting there with the beers in the cup at the end of it as well. To be honest, with you. Yeah, that, <laughs> that was uh, trying to, that, that trying was to steal all that limelight from you, Lee. All right, yeah, uh, no, in the no, changing no, room, no, all the limelight you get. <laughs> in the changing room, who's got the worst music taste? Any era? Oh wow! Oh wow! Heck, he's up there. I know he's from the he's gone to the dark side, but heck, he's hopeless. He's got the, some of the worst music I've ever heard. Um, who was it? One of the, one of the boys liked all that rock, rock stuff. Um, who was the boy that claimed he scored the goal at Hull that went through the legs and definitely I flicked on? Oh, Giles was... Coke. No, not Giles Coke. Uh, James Quinn. Quinn. James Quinn. Quinn. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Worst ever. Worst ever. He, he reminded me of the, uh, Gareth Ainsworth and all that kind of stuff. You know that rock stuff. No, no. Yeah, Quinny. Quinny definitely the worst during my playing spell. Definitely. <laughs> Okay, okay. And then I've got one here from James Cockins. He's gone with, have you ever tried to arrange a pre-season friendly between Ayr and Wednesday? Yeah, tried to get one this, well, tried to get one last season. Uh, just didn't work out. Uh, they were going to have away. Uh, thought we were going to have one this season. Um, Darren was uh, talking about it, but it would have been a sort of 23-stroke reserve type of team that would have come up, unfortunately. Would love, would love to get them up Tell you what, I wish I had a pound for every Sheffield Wednesday fan that's been a near United game since I've been up here. Yeah. There's been loads, been loads come up. And to be honest, Air United had been brilliant. They did say anybody that can show a Sheffield Wednesday season ticket will get a free ticket to get into the game. So there's been loads that have come up and really enjoyed it. So it's been great to see. Don't get me wrong, our rivals wear blue and white stripes, Kilmarnock. So some of the looks they get when they walk into the Air United uh, supporters <laughs> bar in blue and white stripes, they, there has to be a double, double take and just double check the badge that's on the shirt. Fair enough. And then, uh, and then last one is um, Mr Bullen. I always thought that Stuart Gray should have been given a chance to take the team forward. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, no, I've always felt that Stuart deserved an opportunity. He gave me my opportunity in the first place. And I think he did deserve mm-hmm. the opportunity. I thought he did an absolutely amazing job. One, with the um, sort of budget he was working under at the time. But two, the, and probably the, one of the biggest things for me was the pitch was an absolute joke at the time. It was just before Mr. Mm-hmm. Chancery had come in. And the pitch was like Blackpool Beach. Uh, some of the stuff that you had to try and play on the pitch was ridiculous. So what Stuart Gray did there was absolutely unbelievable. Listen, Carlos is one of the best coaches I've worked under. He was phenomenal. But Stuart in my opinion, deserved that opportunity after the job that he had done to uh, to stabilise the, the club uh, before Carlos did come in. He, he's such a gentleman, such a good guy. He would have played different tactics uh, uh, tactically if he had had a decent surface to play on and probably had one or two better players to work with. And that's no disrespect to the group that he, uh, he had at the time in comparison to the group that Carlos, Carlos was able to put together. So, no... He was absolutely phenomenal as such. Okay, as such. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like, this is this is actually the last one. Uh, this one's from our very own John. Ashley, what it's like to be immortalised in the dream scene painting alongside those Sheffield Wednesday greats? Uh, I'm a wee bit embarrassed about it because when you see some of the pictures up there, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it is, it's, it's a... Oh. I've got... Um, it's, I don't know, it's, it's weird for me, it's weird for me. Sorry, Lee, my apologies. If you don't, sorry, Lee, if you don't mind starting again. 
Sorry. I, I had a bit of audio issue there, my friend. I'm sorry. I don't know if the internet's made it up into Scotland and you want to give the hamster a kick. Um, but I feel like I'm losing you a little bit. Um, can you can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Ah, oh, that's frustrating. Uh, Blair, Simon, uh, you know, I'll I'll give I'll I'll just kick Lee out just while he comes back on in a second. If I can see him moving in the bottom, is there anything you guys want to add before I wrap this up? Not particularly. No. <laughs> I, I just I just wonder if he feels um, obviously his time as caretaker manager, whether or not he feels like he never got a full grasp of being given the job. You know, because he never got the jobs and had to move away. Um, I think you might be right. Um, let me know, see if we can ask back. him. Is he still there? Lee, are you still with us? No, we've timed out. We've timed out. Lee, if you can hear us, if you can see us, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I must admit, I was fangirling a little bit. Um, <laughs> between yourself and Roland Nilsson and Pamela Anderson, that's took up the wall space when I was a kid. Uh, so if you can hear us, thanks a lot for joining us. Right, so listen. That's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot for joining us this evening. Uh, coming up later on this evening in about five minutes' time, we've got to film another podcast. So uh, that's that's what we're going to do. Um, and I hope you enjoyed that. My apologies about the audio issues. You know, I, again, internet in, in Scotland. What can you do? Thanks a lot. See you later. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. It's the 90th minute. You've got all your mates round. You've got your McNugget chair boxes coming down the left wing, ready to go. Your mate's already been booked for double dipping, and you steal the last nugget. Snatching all three points, back of the net. Lubosh. Automate delivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com for more information. See you later. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.